Hello, and welcome back to MFA Writers. It is now mid-May, which means the end of the school year. Congratulations to all of you who persevered through another pandemic-tainted semester. This past year has been extremely difficult from a physical and mental health perspective, so you all deserve a pat on the back. I hope you find this summer to be rejuvenating. The end of the school year brings with it thesis defense season, so good luck to all of you who are at the end of your MFA journey and will be defending your manuscripts soon. I know the thesis defenses at my school were this past week, and I want to send a special congratulations to my friend and episode number one guest, Mary Hinn, who successfully defended her work this week. Congrats, Mary. Our episode today with Antonio Villasenor Baca of the University of Texas at El Paso was requested by listener Jorge Ascarate. I hope you all enjoy it. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Antonio Villasenor Baca. Antonio is a Chican X bilingual journalist, photographer, poet, and writer from El Paso, Texas. He spends his time listening to music and working towards his MFA in creative writing at the University of Texas at El Paso, where he has taught rhetoric and writing studies courses. Antonio also serves as an online editor for Minero Magazine and has written for YR Media, 18 to 29 Now, Border Zine, and El Paso Inc. He has published poetry in Rio Grande Review, Mojave Heart Review, and Norte Sur. He focuses on short fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, and visual photographic narratives. Today, he has brought two poems to read for us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I'll get right into these poems. So the first one is titled Pears. Brown bodies are like pears, contradictions, sweet and bitter, slim and plump, soft and firm. Brown bodies aplenty, covering aisles in Walmart, escaping a hateful white heat shooting in through the doors on an el paso sunday the hate the heat holds is thrashing baby purple grapes and smashing oranges even melting bananas but brown bodies were and now brown bodies are lifeless losing their color pairs on the floor of the walmart leaking lifeless juice, puddling simply because they're pears. And the second poem is called A Couple of Cool Things. Remember Sonic Youth toured with car-sick cars in Europe and Prague and Vienna in 2007. Hey, honey, cool things sit in. Don't you know I just want to roll around with you around Europe? With you, like a lover, not a dancer. We'll see and love and be buying. Punk records and small, dingy, dark punk shops with no names, just signs. With just neon vinyl illuminating dark, cobblestone streets filled with nothing, but warm, obtrusive neon. Cool thing, let me play it with your radio. We already look like the couple from The Goo Cover. We'll call Clint pretentious and mainstream, even though we both really do love him and his shiny gold. Pictures are the only things that give us a glimmer or shine. Ask him if he's going to liberate girls from male, white, corporate oppression. I'll call you Kim, and you'll call me Thurston. They're touring. 
a female planet, a female planet with car sick cars, fear, baby, all the way from Beijing. Though we're from somewhere even further, we're all strangers walking. Like Panthers, not from here. I don't wanna, but we really can be happy. I don't think so. Just stick around by my side, flip the record, and you and I can pretend this world is ours. Antonio, thank you so much for reading both of those poems. Thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm really honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you have a lot going on, my friend. Uh, As it says in your bio, you're a writer and a photographer. You write fiction and nonfiction, journalism and poetry. And it seems to me from reading your work that El Paso is a really important part of your identity. But I want to hear it from you. How influential has El Paso been to the person and the writer that you are? It's it's really been the framework for for how I've navigated and learned to navigate uh, not just writing, not just my careers, um, but just my identity as a person. And I guess even beyond that, I mean, El Paso. It's very strange. It's it ver- it really is the 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 metaphor that I always hear is like El Paso is a bubble, um, and really because you know. We're one of the largest cities and one of the largest states that tends to be, even though it's, it's kind of starting to flip very slowly, but still one of the most conservative cities, uh, uh, states. El Paso is just very different. It's never really pertained to like a lot of the politics of the rest of Texas. Um, it used to be a part of Mexico a very long time ago. Uh, that's where the name comes from, El Paso del Norte, with the pass to the north. Um, but more, more interestingly enough, and, and this is where the Chicanx, Chicano, Chicana culture comes in, is we, it's always just been very difficult to understand like who we are or what we are, uh, because we're not really Mexican, we're not really you know U.S. Like, but like both both countries will be like, well, you're too much like that side. It's like so nobody wants us, uh, and I think there's a lot of just searching and. and kind of like wandering as to who we are and what we are. And I think that's kind of what's bled into a lot of my writing and my career. One of the poems you you read today, Pairs, focuses on the domestic terrorist attack that occurred in El Paso and took 23 lives. I know, because I read it on, on YR Media, that the Walmart where this happened is just a couple of minutes from where you live. You've written about the shooting as a journalist for YR Media and as a poet in UTEP's MFA program. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about that event and how it has affected El Paso and you as a writer. I, I, I'm really glad you phrased it that way. It was a terrorist event, and it really struck the community. I mean, obviously, it was very, very painful, mostly because, like I said, we are in this sort of bubble, and we never in a million years would have imagined that this would have happened. It was someone from another city in Texas that drove down here and did these things because of things that they hear about our city in the news and all these mainstream narratives. And they just assumed that all these things were true. I, I specifically remember hearing someone, I, I don't remember where I read this or heard this, but someone was like, well, if you hear this on the news and you actually believe that these things are happening, that all these people are flooding into the country and they're here to ruin the country, it almost seems like a rational thing. Almost, not quite, but it does almost seem like a rational thing to do. But the fact is, is that it's not happening. Like This is one of the most... It's one of the safest, but one of the most loving, uh, kind, warm-hearted communities, I, I personally think, in, in the country. Um, covering that event was very, it was very difficult. Uh, I had covered some things in terms of like with immigration and that had been a little bit difficult. And, you know, I got home that day and it was difficult. But covering the shooting, uh, I can tell you the day that it happened, I like you're, it's right behind my house. Like it's walking distance. It's the one that I've been going to since I was a kid. Uh, and that day, I remember, like I woke up. It was in the middle. Uh, it was uh, like th- the film festival was going on, which is like this big staple in the community. And I was set to go watch a Wes Anderson movie that night. And then I wake up, and all these messages are like, "Everyone has to stay home. There's an active shooter. We don't know what's going on." And especially us being here, like in this neighborhood. They told us, don't go out. Maybe there's more than one. We don't know yet. Uh, they might be walking around the neighborhood. Um, so it was terrifying. And we were just watching this on the news and people were calling me. And like, um, I actually had an editor from YR like, reach out to me like even before the reporting. I was just like, hey, I saw this is going on. Are you okay? Uh, 
And, you know, like, that's not something that we're accustomed to. Like, it's just, there's a huge shock factor to all of that. But definitely, and I think the what happened at that shooting also kind of highlights uh, the demographic landscape of the city and who we are in this Chicano culture that I'm referencing. Because it wasn't just U.S. citizens. Um, there were also Mexican nationals in there. Because this Walmart... Uh, is where a lot of people from Ciudad Juarez come over, um, either for work or for whatever reason, but they'll come over here and that's the Walmart that they go to because it's so close to the, to one of the bridges. Um, I think there was a German national too, actually. So like very international, like we have people from all over the place, like El Paso's a hub. Like it's just one of those cities. And like, how did that affect the community? Like, is that something that you felt afterwards? I'm sure you did. And, and like in the last year and a half since it happened how is el paso doing i mean it's it was i mean first it was one of those things where like there was there was no break like this happened in august of 2019 um and then what was it like four months afterwards that the that the pandemic hit and like we went into lockdown um so there was really no time to process and grieve a lot of it like i think it was in january like we had a small little like tremor like little earthquake that like some people felt some people did it but it was just like what is happening like all these things are happening within like within a few months um but i I think it shows number one how el paso persists and and survives and you know we really the community did come together but the biggest factor like immediately was i remember i left the house i think it was monday so two days after the shooting because it was on a saturday it was the first time that I ever like left my house and was just driving in El Paso and just heard silence. That was very strange um, because El Paso is very vibrant. Like you hear music everywhere, you hear people talking everywhere. It's just one of those, I mean, we have the joke here that everyone knows everyone in the city. Uh, and people treat it like it's a small little pueblito, but the fact is that it, it is one of the largest cities and one of the largest states in the country. And so that feeling is just, I think, a very strong sense of community and how much we, we just talk to, to each other, strangers, uh, you know, friends of friends, uh, family of friends, friends of family. Like, we know faces and we'll just, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Where are you off to? The big eight? Oh, cool. I'm going to Walmart. Um, it's just there was so much emotion. And so hearing my city like that, that was an immediate kind of uh, effect of, of what had happened that day. Um, and that slowly started dissipating, like, you know, again, like the music started coming back and everything. But I do think that there was a lot of survivor's guilt because it was just, it's a Walmart that we've all been to. You know, like I had that reflection, like, what if I had been there that morning to buy groceries? Uh, it's just this horrible. And then the fact that they reopened it, that Walmart, um, it was, it's very strange. And, and I mean, I won't lie to you, I've been to that Walmart. It's, again, the one that's, like, the closest to my house. But it's just so strange and knowing, like, this happened and we're still here. And, uh, it was and because of the pandemic. It was kind of difficult to cope. And I think we saw that amongst a lot of people. There was a lot of uneasiness and fidgetiness. Um, I think a lot of people struggled with, like, the lockdown and being able to stay in. But in El Paso, it was definitely, definitely. And Ciudad Juarez, um, especially because, like, we there's so much commuting and, like, you know, we go to Juarez on the weekends to party and then we come here to work or for what, like whichever side you live on. And all of that had to stop. And so then we really had to like look at what had happened and the effects. And then with the presidential election that was going on, it was kind of the same thing. Um, so the community, I think, really rallied, especially the artistic community. Like I can tell you, like within a couple of days, there were like all these different uh, events. Uh, fundraisers like we're going to be selling artwork you just pay whatever you want there's going to be raffles uh the community foundation that actually is in charge of of that film festival i mentioned earlier um they put they raised a bunch of money and like gave it to to the victims um so it was it was a huge testament to how strong and and well-knit this community is and at the same time i think it also shows like this culture of like persistence that's always the word that i like to use because we're always like covered by these waves of like are are we just lesser mexicans are we lesser u.s citizens like what are we what's our culture and still we stay strong and we we, we survive past all that well you know having covered this story and written about it from a journalistic perspective what made you want to return and write about it creatively 
a lot of my coverage, I did some interviews, I did writing and all that, but I had just bought uh, this, you know, one of those huge telephoto lenses, and so I was using that to take a lot of the photos. And this, I think that was one of the harder things where, and, and I realized this, and I actually, it was, I think the Wednesday afterwards where, I think that was the day that the president, or the then president was supposed to come into town. Um, I was taking photos at, at all the at the vigils and the events and everything, and it was just this excruciating work of having to like put this huge camera. And even though the, like with that lens, I can shoot photos from really far away. I had to be I had to be pointing my camera at people who were mourning and grieving and just crying, um, and it was really really horrible work. And I can tell you that within those two weeks of all that coverage, that's the most I've made in freelancing like at one time. Um, it's, a, it's, a, I was invited to speak in a lot of places. Um, I had, I had several other colleagues, uh, other journalists, photo journalists, uh, freelancers in the city getting their, their biggest paychecks or, uh, getting their first photos featured on, I think, uh, USA Today, or I don't even remember which outlet. Oh, I think it was the AP. So AP. Um, but it came with this like realization that our big breaks, like when we're getting the most exposure came at, you know, like at what cost? And so creatively, it was definitely an outlet. And so I remember that day where I was first taking photos of these people, like I didn't stop. Like it was from like eight in the morning to like eight o'clock at night. I was going, driving all over the city, like interviewing people. And then I, I, I messaged a couple of my, my colleagues, uh, my peers from the MFA program. And I was like, hey, do you guys want to go to go get a dinner and a, and a beer somewhere? And I sat down and I started crying and I was like, I didn't see that coming, but it just, the journalistic work was very like, this is what has to be done. This is what has to be said and shown. And so creatively, I think the poetry and all that, um, that's kind of where I got to let out the frustration and, and, and just all the other emotions that were being pent up there. Well, you know, as you mentioned, El Paso has, has always or long been this liminal space, like a borderline between Mexico and the U.S., between two groups of people, two cultures. You, you've told me that being Chicanx is incredibly important to you and that it influences your work a lot. In what ways do you see this mixture of identities showing up in your work? I, I think it permeates in, in, in a few different ways. Um, first, and, and I think this is always really important to note, is that if you call someone Chicana ex Chicano in in El Paso, it's it's fifty fifty. Right? They're gonna you know be like hell yeah and give you a high five, or they're gonna, they're going to be very very offended. Um, and it's because it's one of those words that's just so like it really has become it has gone to a point where it's just everyone's interpretation of it. Um, you know, like I'll ask my family because they don't identify that way. Uh, like, who do you think of when you think of Chicano? Um, and with me, like, I would tell you Ruben Salazar, Dagoberto Gil, um, Dolores Huertas, Cesar Chavez. But they'll tell you George Lopez. And I'm like, all right, what happened that we're, like, so many stones apart from, from these, like, the way that we identify this word? I, I do think that it has a lot to do with, like, the assimilation and, like, how, um, like, a lot of the origins, especially in the early 20th century, El Paso was kind of built. I mean, we have, like, certain organizations and places that were built to help Mexican nationals assimilate to American culture. Um, and I think that's deeply, deeply like rooted into who we are. Um, and it takes a lot of self-reflection. And I think like it comes at the cost of questioning one's own self-doubt, if not self-loathing. You'd be like, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel less than? And I think that's, it's that self-doubt and kind of, if not self-loathing, that kind of permeates in my characters. But I think the narrative arc of a lot of my work, uh, especially like the bit larger project of which these two poems belong to, uh, is about kind of getting over that. Um, you know, you look at my my uh, my my Instagram and Twitter handles, which is El Bilingüe or the Bilingüe, uh, which is a play on word. It's Bilingüe, but then it's also the word way, which is like I mean, it's used like dude. I, that came out as a joke actually in the MFA program, where someone you know I have a lot. I'm, I work with a lot of Latin American students. And then one of, one of my peers just told me, like, you're not bilingual, like, in Spanish, right? They're like, you're not really bilingual. You're, I mean, you, you, you try, like, you, you can understand everything. And I'm like, no, yes, I am bilingual. Like, it's just my, yeah, my Spanish is choppy, but 
they say the same thing about my English. And I'm like, okay, I'm not bilingue. I'm bilingue. And it was just a laugh. I was like, you know what? I'm going I'm to I'm own it. Um, and, and that's exactly what I think that narrative arc is and what my characters and my poetry and, and hopefully my photos as well kind of convey. It's like, that's what it's built on. It's definitely rooted in this like colonization sort of like, you know, these are lands that were stolen from our ancestors. Like the Aztecs and the Mayans, um, which are so prevalent in, in our culture and our art around the city here and, and Ciudad Juarez, they were erased, especially the Aztecs. Like they were one of the greatest civilizations and they were erased by, by colonizers. Um, and even though that was so long ago, it's it's like the ripples it's they're still reverberating in, in in our identities and who we are and i think chicano culture and chicanx identity specifically is very much about taking that back um the word was a huge in the in the in the protest movements in the 80s was a huge response to the invention of the word hispanic um i can tell you a lot of people in el paso identify with that but for me it's a huge insult um because that was a word invented to kind of just put all brown people into a single label in the U.S. census under the Nixon administration. And so that's what, like, all these words, it's semantics, but at the end, like, it really means a lot to, like, people here on the border. And I think it's that confusion and that topsy-turvy, like, navigating that is kind of in my work. Because I'm still figuring it out. Like, all of this is very recent. Like, using the X, too, that's also pretty recent, like, I don't know, it was a year or two ago where I was just like, gender seems really dumb to me. I don't think I want to, I don't think I follow the guidelines to be um, this gender or that gender. And so I started using the X. And I think that's just all what a lot of my work is about. Another place where I noticed this like mixture of identity showing up was in Consafos, uh, the bilingual online magazine of culture and arts that's based in El Paso. You founded the magazine. You're the editor-in-chief. Tell us about that project. Uh, yeah, that I that magazine is, is my pride and joy. It's gone through several iterations with, with different people, um, but as it is right now, it's it's. Uh, I can assure you, it's not defunct. It has been a little bit slow, but I was actually like working on a review this morning for it. Um, it's a magazine that started off as uh, it was supposed to be a one time thing, and this was I think like in 2015, 2016. It was just supposed to be about um, kind of the same thing that we've been talking about. Um, a friend of mine approached me and was like, hey, let's do something where we can talk about the citizens of El Paso, um, the business owners, the artists. And, you know, we'll come up with these stories, find some funding, get it published, and we'll be done with that. That project sort of morphed and it turned into an online thing. And we're like, well, we can keep it going. There's different things going on. There's obviously enough people to do this like for a very long time. And there always will be and there will be new ones. And so that was when I was still doing my undergrad at UTEP as well. And then the year that I graduated, I kind of took the year off before my master's. Um, and actually, like, because of the MFA process, and I had, I had struggles finding uh, funding. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go into debt. I'm going to focus on this magazine. I revived it. I restarted it. I actually found attorney. I found investors. I found one of my old writers to, like, help me start it up again. Um, and I was like, but you know what, like now, like, let's do like a music magazine. Like, that's what we always talked about. And at the same time, I'm like, we don't need to like throw El Paso out of like the mix. Like, I think it can be the, the center of what it is. And so that's how it started. Like, I mean, we, at this point I've interviewed people all over the world and we still interview people from everywhere, all different types of genres. Um, I actually did some interviews in Chile, uh, for, for the magazine, um, and that, I mean, in person, but like over email and over the phone, Japan, Australia, like everywhere. But we always try to give a spotlight to people from El Paso or artists that use bilingual lyrics, um, anything that shows like a, mi- a mixing of culture. And so that's how Consalf started. The name itself also comes from a book called Drink Cultura by Jose Antonio Burciaga, who is a, fr- a writer from here, too. He's actually the one who painted the Chicano Last Supper, which I believe is still located at Stanford. But he went, he went to the same high school I did. He graduated with my grandfather. But that book was one of the first huge stepping stones uh, of me uh, discovering and identifying with the Chicanx culture. It's like a bunch of little vignettes. But the CS is actually on the cover. And CS, Consafos, was a tag that was used in Segundo Barrio, which is a, a historic uh, like neighborhood in, in El Paso. 
Uh, and it was a graffiti tag. And it was, I guess a direct way of translating it would be kind of like, not the direct way, but directly it would be like with safety or something like that. Uh, but it means like you can't mess with it. Like whatever was sprayed with it, with like the CS was like you can't mess with this. This is unequivocally me and my property. And like, um, and Burciaga uses uses that idea and kind of applies it to the Chicano people. And it's like, look, mainstream media sees us this way. People will treat us this way. We'll be demeaned. We'll be lessened. But that's not our reality. So whatever you think, however you want to treat us, however you want to see us, that is not our reality. That's not who we are. And so that's what the consafos means. And so I was like, as a journalist, I think that's amazing because it's about fighting narratives. Um, as an El Paso, I love it just as much because I'm like, you know, people still, you know, you look at movies like Logan, um, Sicario, like all these movies were like El Paso is like a war zone. And I'm just like, dude, like that's where I buy burritos. That's not where there's like gunfights. Like, are you serious? Like. So yeah, the Contafos is very, very relevant in my life, and 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 that's why I chose that for the magazine, and that's where the magazine comes from. Well, you you wrote about the magazine that artists, musicians, writers, and any other title they use are people before any categorizing label, and as people, our stories run deeper than a profession, and our interviews and stories reflect that. I love that quote because to me, that is like the creative mind at work. You can't just write about music. You have to look underneath the surface and find the human story in it, which that got me thinking, what came first, the journalistic writing or the creative writing for you? You know, I, I think that's a little bit complicated because it's it's both, I guess, and also neither. Um this is kind of that that eclectic, chaotic sort of like I'm all over the place thing I was telling you about, and that I that you kind of saw with the work that I do. the The very sweet short story is that I got into writing of any kind um, because I used to love baseball, and somewhere along the road I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm I'm you know I wear glasses, I have uh, pretty weak knees, um, I don't think I'm going to make it to center field for the Boston Red Sox. Um, but baseball was just still such a huge cultural like. Uh, point of, of reference for me uh, i i fell in love with my latinidad my latinx my latinx identity when i was a kid by watching david ortiz with the red Sox, and then on top of that it was also a family thing because my grandfather was he's the one who loved baseball his whole life and he's the one that i would watch the games with um, and so when i realized like all right i don't think i'll be able to play but i can still hang out with these people if i was like a journalist and i started working for espn um, and then as I got to college, it kind of morphed and like, it got into political reporting and, and immigration and stuff. As, as much as I still love the Red Sox and the Celtics, like I was like, yeah, I just I think my, my, my skills were a little bit better in these areas. And then for a while, it shifted back into the creative writing um, during my undergrad because I, I majored in those two uh, fields. Um, and the creative writing, I always thought was just going to be a supplement to, to, to the journalism. My focus in the long run was always going to be publishing a book, publishing poetry. Um, but the, the way I would make money would be the journalism. And so, which, if that doesn't show you how naive I was, that journalism was going to be how I broke the bank. <laughs> um, and so, I, I, they kind of started like complementing each other and it would reset. Like, I would fall in love with one more than the other. And then the other one would morph a little bit. And I would want to focus on this and I would want to focus on that. And so, they kind of kept turning and reinventing themselves in my life. And it got to the point where I was just like, and actually coming into the MFA, this is a, a question I had for myself. I'm like, am I a journalist who writes poetry or am I a poet who writes, who, who does journalism? Um, and that's kind of where that quote comes from. I just realized I'm like, I'm not either. Like I'm a person who does both. And that's how I was able to integrate the photography more and, and, just a lot of other aspects of, of my of my hobbies and my skills and what I do. I, I and I saw it in my MFA too. Where I was just like, people really try hard to not in my MFA personally, but I see this in the world of writers. Uh, I see a lot of people trying to fit this aesthetic of like what it is to be a writer. And more times than not, in my opinion, I think that leads to very problematic writers, like that you need to fit this like tortured writer. Like Hemingway is so great. Nah, dude, just be a person. Like, understand that Hemingway was problematic too in his own way. Like, he was kind of a jerk. Like, the writing is technically very, very, like, technically proficient and amazing, but some of the characters maybe aren't. Um, but if you're just focused on being a writer, like, oh, like 
yeah, he's amazing and like infallible. And so I think this idea of like being a person first and then falling into your what you do is for a living or as a hobby or however you choose to identify, you're a person first whose actions have repercussions and you need to live life. Like that's going to be your mark on this, on this earth. You applied to UTEP as a poet, right? No, quite the opposite. I, I, I was focused very much on fiction. I wanted to write novels. Um, and like, that was, that was me. I was like, maybe I can, I can branch off into short stories, but it was those two. Like poetry scared me. Um, and I still do everything. Like I, I, I use poet because um, I think I think poetry should be like in every genre of fiction or of writing. But no, I was I, I applied and I was I was going to write the next great novel. Like that was my that was my thing. So you applied for fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then during the program, you decided to like explore poetry, and and now it sounds like you're writing in lots of genres. So that must be encouraged in the program. I think like there's there's definitely like finite rules. So like um, they tell you like your your thesis is going like the length of it is going to be based on what genre you're writing in. So I think the manuscript has to be 90 pages if it's poetry and 120 for fiction or anything else. Navigating my identity and what I wanted to do for that thesis that was the, the main objective for me. Um, and so the genre really blended along the way because I wanted to write a novel and that's part of what I'm doing. Um, but then I really fell in love with poetry that, that following semester in, in spring of 2019. Um, I started using more photography in that class. I was like, why not experiment with doing photography and poetry? And actually the cool thing, uh, is that the, what the poem's called? I forget the name of my own poetry. But that, that one has a, an accompanying photo that was added on later to, to that poem. Um, my publication in Norte Sur also was started with a po- with a photo that I took when I went to Cuba. And so I just started realizing, I was like, why should I have to pick one or the other? And it was kind of like this, like returning to this conversation of my identity. I was like, why do I have to be one thing or the other? Why do I have to be Mexican or American, a journalist or a poet, uh, do poetry or fiction? And I was like, I can do everything because that's what I am. That's who I, that's who I am. That's what I do. And so I started working, um, once I finally had my thesis director, at this point, I was like just meshing things together. And I'm including, I actually have some interviews and have changed them a little bit um, from Consafos that I've done. And so I was like, I'm not creating a single story with like the same characters, but I'm creating a narrative arc. And I think this project is exactly that. So I, I want to convey that like writing and being a person as a whole and what this identity is, that's what this project is. And so... It, it, it has a lot of different elements. And so I'm like, why shouldn't the, the physical work, the genre include that as well? I love it. I love, you know, mixing up the genres and, you know, putting yourself on the page in that way. I think that's fantastic. Um, and I love that, that UTEP, you know, in, encourages that or allows that in their, in the projects that you're working on. So let's talk about the program a, a bit. The University of Texas at El Paso actually has two MFA programs. One is a residential MFA, like you see at other schools, and the other is a fully online MFA that students can complete from anywhere in the world with no residency requirements. Both are three-year programs with a course of study in fiction, poetry, literary translation, and nonfiction. But what's really unique about UTEP is that it's a bilingual program in English and Spanish. So what does a bilingual program look like in practice? I, I think this is where it gets a little bit murky and like I think it expands so much of like what an MFA program is, but at the same time, like it, it does come with some like uh, misnomers and this like, you know, like I mentioned that anecdote of how, where I came up with bilingue, you know, that, that comment was said to me because I, I, my Spanish is not that proficient, like comparative to anyone in, in, in Mexico or much less, I would say in, in, in any other Latin American country where I'm not familiar with, with the slang and vernacular. And so when we had a, when I started this program, number one, it was a huge culture shock because UTEP at the undergrad level is almost entirely people from El Paso. Like that's kind of their whole spiel of like, it, it gives space for economic movement. Um, it's just hometown kids. And then when I got to this MFA program, I think there was our cohort of like 11 or 12 there was like one other person from UTEP or from El Paso and everyone, almost everyone else was from Latin America. I think there were only two that were from the U S 
and then every like there was a lot of people from from Colombia, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Peru. There was one from Costa Rica, and so some some of them were writing exclusively in Spanish, and so there was actually a struggle. So it wasn't so much like as it was bilingual as much as it was two existing two languages existing in the classroom, and so there was a little bit of a of a misconnect there. Um, that being said, most of the faculty and, and the professors can give you like great feedback in both languages. And so like the canon, like what we were reading, um, our workshops was like, it was sometimes a little bit of a strain for me. Um, I know some students who either didn't know English or didn't know Spanish and it was a strain for them. But it also led to some great conversations because I mean, if there's also a focus on literary translation and we're having to translate things on Google on Google Translate just to be able to do your your normal once a week workshop. There's going to be conversations as to like, wow, the language is really funny. I can't believe this word means that. And actually, like that, uh, I'll, I'll give you a funny anecdote. So I don't go on a long rant here, but uh, there was one day. I think it was our first semester. We were in. We were eating at a, at a diner. I think it was like close to finals weekend. So we were working our on our stuff, on our portfolios, and uh, we were trying to like plan a birthday gift for one of our one of our peers and i told them me quieren pichar el dinero para poder comprar so like do you want to pichar is like very slight here on the border like that just do you want to pitch me the money so we can buy them a gift and two of my 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 peers from that are from bogota colombia like gave me like the most scared face and were like what did you just tell me and i was like what and they were like what do you what does that word mean to you and i told them like, it means pitch me the money and they're like oh because over there you just asked us to have sex with you and I was like, oh, no, I promise I did not mean to say that. Like, that's not what it means here. And then our, and then, uh, our friend from Puerto Rico was like, oh, no, that word means, like, forget it. Like, it's like, pichalo is like, forget about it. And so I was like, if you're going to misunderstand me, misunderstand me that way because the other one is horrible. Like, I can't believe I just said that. Um, and so there's always these constant conversations of what language is and at least the conversations that I think are very important in an MFA because it questions the rhetorical usage of language and technique. Um, and again, like we're not just reading like classic uh, U.S. literature, Hemingway, Melville, stuff like that. We read a lot of the Latin American boom. We read a lot of Borges. Um, I want to say we read a little bit of Marquez, but um, I mean, we've read amazing, amazing writers. And I, I, it, was, it was a canon that I was not accustomed to at all, having been from... El Paso, you know, from the from the border on the U.S. side. I'm curious, like working with these students from all over Latin America, how has that changed your writing or maybe even your perspective of El Paso, having people in your cohort that you're working with on a daily basis and having conversations with? I mean, the one thing is that it definitely helped me see my community from a different lens. And it also, I mean, it was also very critical for me in terms of like taking pride in my identity. Um, because a lot of people do come here and they're like, doesn't Chicano just mean like you can't speak Spanish that well? And I'm like, no, like it's a whole culture. And and, and it was kind of, and I can tell you like, there's not a lot of Chicano literature in, in, the, in the classes that I've read. Uh, I, 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 I was listening to the podcast last week with Alejandro Puyano and I think he had published with Wisache. Wisache was, was, I think, started or founded or at one point led by Dagoberto Gil. So I'm like, there's no shortage of Chicanx writers. But the only one that we would really get was like Sandra Cisneros. And I'm like, there's so many more. And that, yeah, I had beef with that too. And so um, like one writer I got to discover in a, in a class of uh, writing the novel was, uh, and it was like a, a novelist that I had to look up for a presentation, uh, was Elena Maria Viramontes, who, whose book Under the Feet of Jesus like so good. And it's definitely like in terms of its narration style is so unique. Yeah, it's just, it's been able to see my community and discover my identity from like a different lens and take pride in that, um, as well as opening myself to other parts of the world. And like I said, like as, as, as unique as El Paso is, and there's the Mexican culture and, and Chicanx culture is very prevalent here, the, you know, the education system is still part of the U.S. And so high school, I still read Hemingway, Shakespeare, I don't know, a bunch of dudes like that. And so... An MFA class as a whole, like, I mean, obviously it's a master's in creative writing. There should be more, you should be experienced to new things. But this was canon that I don't think I wouldn't have been shown in any other place. And so 
like I said, I had applied to, I was going to go to one of two other MFA programs uh, the year I ended up taking off. Um, and I, I got to look at some of their classes and, and what the readings that they were requiring me. And it was nothing at all like what, what I was, what I ended up getting here at UTEP. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, any kind of opportunity to like diversify the readings, diversify the cohort, diversify the perspectives in a program, I think can only benefit you as a writer and a reader in these programs. One thing I was curious about with UTEP, it, I was reading on the website, apparently it's the first school to offer a 100% online MFA program. And now they're the first to offer an online MFA in Spanish for Spanish language poets and writers who may have vis- visa issues or family issues or jobs that would otherwise prevent them from pursuing an MFA how much do you know about that program? Are, are those students taking the same classes with the same professors as residential students? Um, so there are small differences. And I, can, I can tell you I've taken, I think, two classes in the, in the online MFA, and they, like, they allowed the residential students to take like one or two. Um, I had one, one uh, peer in my cohort uh, who actually went to go study abroad, and so she had to take classes online, and they're like, well, that's fine, you know. You're going to another country to like write, so of course we're going to let you. And then meeting the students from from the online MFA was, I was like, oh, like they were from everywhere. I can't even remember the country, but I was like, they're not from even this hemisphere. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is a hundred percent online. I can I can tell you, I think it was. I was like the pandemic has made everything kind of the, the timeline's kind of weird. I think it was two years ago where we had uh, Lupe Mendez come to UTEP and, and, and read from his, his latest book of poetry, Why I Am Like Tequila. Um, he was a, 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 an, an alumnus of the online MFA. Um, and it's working with the same faculty. I, I think one of the biggest differences is the only classes on theory and, and, and writing that we, that we take, um, that's with a different professor. Like They're both taken with the directors of the different programs. And so... This I, that's an invention that came from the idea of accommodating students and realizing that this bureaucratic stuff is very impractical, if not counterintuitive to actually helping people with their education to do what they want to do. Uh, just the struggles I, between the, the Ciudad Juarez and El Paso sides, between crossing the border sometimes is a big factor for a lot of students at UTEP. Um, and this online MFA and these classes help that. And it's really just about it, it opens up these conversations and these workshops and gives different perspectives and we get to have more influences and more writers brought to the table. And um, that's really all that that does and why, why the, M- the online aspect of this MFA um, is such a big deal. And one thing I imagine that's different between the two programs is funding opportunities. It was a bit hard to find funding info on UTEP's website, but it doesn't seem to be a fully funded program I know that you have taught at UTEP. So was that an opportunity that came through the MFA program? It was, it was kind of in lieu of. So when I, when I got into it, I'm actually kind of fretting about that right now. Um, so I, these, the rhetoric and writing studies courses that I taught uh, were part of this TA ship that I got teaching these classes. Um, and I got that when I came into the program because I told them when I came in, I was like, in-state tuition, UTEP is, is one of the most affordable places Still, and and, they, and because I knew a lot of the faculty members and everything, they told me off the get-go, they're like, this program is not going to get you any funding. Like, you're from here, and the money that we use is to bring students from, from Latin America or from other places. And so I knew that I was going to have to get it from somewhere else. And so uh, the director of the program basically told me, uh, hey, there's the English department. is they, they take a couple of creative writing students every year. Um, so you should apply with them. I applied. I got it. It was. I, I really enjoyed it because I think I got an opportunity that a lot of other people didn't get um, in, in my cohort and in creative writing, other than like the other two people who also got the same TA ship. Um, in that we got to teach classes, it was a different concentration, and it was kind of like, you know, it was learning something different than you. And um, the classes that I specifically taught, I'm, I'm teaching two of them right now. It's working with a lot of first generation students, first generation college students. A lot of, you know, a lot of people from my community, I was like, I asked them what high schools they went to. And a lot of them are from the high schools that I know that, you know, my, te- my high school played against your high school football games and stuff like that. And so that was just been very humbling. And I, I've enjoyed that thoroughly. I love working with students and that was great. But they didn't renew my, my, my contract for that TA ship because it was for three years and I've always had to extend mine for another year. So 
definitely stepping up the freelancing stuff. But funding after that is a little bit difficult. And I can say that I'm in a little bit more of a privileged place because, again, I know a lot of the faculty and other departments. And I'm definitely planning on reaching out to, to communications and seeing if creative writing finds anything else. But it is it is limited. But um, as, as I feel like it's the, the, the story with a lot of MFAs, but it's there. It just It does take a lot more looking and I know that I was very lucky because I'm from here and I know people and that's not the case with a lot of other students. So it is kind of the the life of a writer that finding the grind and, and that funding. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, you have so many things going on, but so I don't know how you would find time to do anything else. But I noticed that the Rio Grande Review, a bilingual journal of literature and contemporary art is housed at UTEP and is edited by students in the MFA program. Have you gotten the chance to work with that magazine or do you know anyone who has? Yeah, so that's actually part of the, the funding. So um, a lot of a lot of my cohort uh, actually in one shape, way, form or another, uh, like their TA ship, their work was through the Rio Grande Review. Like they were the editors, they got to, I don't know, they, they, they handled different aspects of it. And that's actually the, the poem that I published in, in Rio Grande was because uh, the editor at the time was like, I just want as many people from, from our program to apply. Like, I can't promise that you're going to get accepted, obviously, but everyone apply. Like, and he made a huge push of like everyone to like, send in at least a piece or two. So yeah, it's, it's a very, um, that, that, that magazine journal is, is very much a part of this MFA program. Uh, every time we have the readings, like usually like we'll be like, and we have copies of the Rio Grande review, uh, don't forget to grab one, follow us on social media, stuff like that. It's yeah, it's it's very prevalent in the program. And besides the Rio Grande review, what other extracurricular opportunities are available at UTEP? I, I noticed Minero magazine is also um affiliated with UTEP. Yeah, that's the the online uh, magazine for uh, House of the Student Publications. Um See, and that was I, I could that would kind of worked out. I can tell you, I've heard about working with them because I had a friend um, that was getting her master's in communications, who who needed money. She needed her her master's paid for, and so she got a job with Minero. And so I I kind of found her again, and uh, when she was getting close to graduating, I was like, why don't you apply? Like I'm not gonna be working there anymore. Um, and then a year after, so I had been working there for a year, and then another uh, student from my cohort ended up getting a job with Minero as well. Yeah, it's there's a lot of there's it's very much one of those things where like there's a lot of opportunities, but it does take a lot of looking. Uh, but definitely very grateful, and I can tell you this that the, the faculty, the administrative, the administrators, uh, that the, the the creative writing community at UTEP is very tightly knit, and it's all about helping each other out. You know, if someone's struggling, they'll be like, let me let me look for you. Let me see if I can find this for you. Like I said, the, the TA ship that I got was something I found out about because my director was like, hey, we can't give you any money, but uh, I think they can. Please apply so you can get it. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about like the sense of community at UTEP because with students coming from all over Latin America to the program, um, you know, I, I've lived a, a broad, I lived abroad for, for quite a long time. So I know that like being far from home can sometimes bring people close together, but it's also difficult to live so far from home. So is the faculty really supportive of students who attend UTEP? And is there a good sense of community amongst the students and the faculty? I definitely feel so. Um, I mean, like, I think with any program, there's going to be like the, you know, the bumps and and along the road. Um, But a lot of the events are very much um, about bringing everyone together the way that the faculty kind of go about telling students like, Hey, these are the cheapest places to live. Like this is everyone tends to end up living pretty near each other or, um, they can offer rides or, you know, it is very tightly knit. And, and especially like, this is one of the newer developments, I guess. I don't even know when, but it was, it's been a couple of years, a few years now, uh, that a local bookstore opened up. They've housed a lot of events and like I can tell you, I've, I've picked up some of the students from my cohort because I have a car here because I live here. Um, and I'll take them to those events and readings. And our faculty members have had readings there. Uh, one of our one of the peers in my cohort um, actually like had published a book prior to getting here. The, this bookstore, uh, Literarity, it's called. They like ordered his book and they have it like on sale. And so Cinco Puntos Press, which is like this huge press too, like they're housed here in El Paso. 
So all these events, this community, like everyone knows each other and it's about helping out as much as they can. Everyone knows each other. Everyone talks to each other. Uh, and it's not just UTEP, like the El Paso Community College, like a lot of their faculty as well are also very huge in the creative writing scene. Yeah, it's just, it, it's very active and flourishing. And obviously like that's been one of the difficulties over the pandemic that we haven't been able to have these readings. Like actually like they just had an event with Joy Harjo, um, but we've had like several readings online this semester where I was like, I really wish that they had been in person. And so, you know, these events have always been trying to get everyone in, in informed and everyone together. Well, that's great. I, I, I love that there are like lots of events in, not only in the program, but just in the El Paso community that bring people together. And it's also been great talking to you. Uh, before we go, I want to give you the last word. If there's anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about, or if you have any advice for anyone who's considering applying to UTEP. Uh, for anyone considering applying to UTEP, it's great. Um, I love the faculty. Uh, I'm not going to like single anybody out because I don't want to be like, like, I don't want to leave anybody out. But it's great. Uh, I think definitely my advice to not just UTEP, but to any MFA program is you get what you put out of it. I mean, it's very simple to go and get the grades and, and do the workshops. But, you know, just go in assuming you really don't know anything. And like, that, I don't mean that in like self-doubting, but just go in being like, you can get 100% out of it. And that's what I've done. Like I, like I mentioned earlier, I struggled with, with the grade aspect in the classes. But my manuscript is always getting close to 300 pages. Uh, obviously a lot of photography, but I was really able to find uh, what kind of writing and, and projects and books and kind of like styles and techniques I really want to do and who I am as a person because I, I did so much of this in the MFA program and just, you know, take the, what you don't like with a grain of salt and what you do like, go 100% at it. Antonio, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come chat with me. I, this has been great. Thank you so much again. I'm, I'm very honored to have been invited. <laughs>